Welcome to episode 1374 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Linthrick of The Ringer, and I'm joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. How are you this week? I'm I'm good this week. I got to, I got to hang out with my mom's dog this morning. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. a good boy. Have so. you considered dog ownership yourself, or is living five minutes away from a dog <laughs> enough for you? <laughs> yeah, I do live sufficiently close that this is like how my, you know, my sister and my best friend both have two kids. So I'm just sort of sated with all of my <laughs> would require responsibilities. Yeah, I'm about to become things. an uncle for the <gasps> first time in my life. That'll be exciting. I've never been an uncle. I'm an only child, so I'm inheriting uncledom, I guess, now that I'm married and my wife's brother is having a baby. Aww. So that'll be fun. Uncle Ben. Uncle Ben. It's it's great fun to be uh, an aunt. I can't speak to being an uncle, but I imagine it's the same. Mm-hmm. It's really terrific because, you know, you, you encounter these children that are sort of uh, vetted by people who you know and trust, so they're not monster children. Because, like, we pretend that all kids are cute, and that's not true. Some of them are horrible. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so you have these good kids, and then when they have moments of being monsters, because all kids, even good kids, have those moments, you get to give them back. And then, like, you get to do things like my my niece turned three uh, yesterday, and I texted my sister, and I asked her, like, what what should I get for, for Willa for her birthday? Like, what, you know, what toy, what characters, like, really grabbing her. And my sister said, oh, well, you could actually get her a baseball mitt in her size because she's playing catch with her dad. And Mm. I had to pretend to not be too excited about that. (laughs) But I was very excited about that. (laughs) How small do baseball gloves come? (laughs) I don't know. We're going to, I'm going to go to Dick's Sporting Goods and I'm going to find out about it. Okay. I think, I mean, yeah, I think she's like of sufficient size that there's probably like a little kid kid glove although maybe it'll be too big for her hand and that'll be adorable too i feel like aunts have a better reputation than uncles on the whole i I hear a lot about like weird uncles yeah there are some weird uncles i hear a lot about cool ants i don't hear so much about weird ants so uncles need better pr maybe there just are more weird uncles than there are weird ants or i don't know you can be a good weird uncle but it's usually kind of a pejorative thing i'll probably be a weird uncle but hopefully in a good way (laughs) you can blaze a a new trail yeah (laughs) Mm. gonna restore the reputation of uncles everywhere (laughs) all previous uncles have fallen down on the job (laughs) so I have just been scanning some fun sports headlines. Let's see what the big news in baseball this week is. We've got fan ban from Wrigley Field for white supremacist (sighs) hand gesture. We've got Addison Russell welcomed back to Wrigley Field. We've got Sinclair Broadcasting buying 21 RSNs, which may mean higher prices or fewer people able to see baseball or more gambling content on our broadcasts. And we've got most of the white Red Sox going to the White House and most of the non-white Red Sox not going to the White House. So fun week in baseball, just some fun sports headlines I was just catching up on. So should we talk about 
Chris Paddock. <laughs> Chris Paddock <laughs> good was in the world. very fun. I, I would encourage people, the Sinclair stuff is is kind of complicated, uh, yeah. at least in terms of the RSNs. Craig Edwards wrote a, a really good piece, I thought, uh, and not just because it appeared at Fangraphs.com, on sort of what the impact might be for folks who uh, currently watch the RSNs that are being purchased by Sinclair. And mm-hmm. yeah, you're right to say like you could, uh, they have a history of bundling things in order to extract higher prices, uh, especially in markets where they also have purchased affiliates that that they might force a cable provider to bundle with a sports network and then make their consumers pay higher prices. So that seems bad, but you mm-hmm. should read about it in greater detail so you appreciate just how bad it could be. And Craig wrote about that. We can we can link to that when we post yeah. this. And there was an interview at Awful Announcing with the CEO of Sinclair who talks about their plans for monetizing baseball broadcasts via gambling. So he's saying here, the acquisition will see Sinclair capitalizing on the new U.S. sports betting market in addition to increased fan engagement and viewership. He expects $1.5 billion to $2 billion of new ad revenue industry-wide in short order from sportsbook operators and other companies marketing in the space. Ripley also plans to eventually allow viewers to place bets right from their screens during live games, similar to how fans can wager in Europe now. Quote, if you're interested in gaming, we're going to add on extra stats, the ability to do prop bets in the game, pitch by pitch, play by play. You can play along and wager while you watch. The in-game on-screen wagers, which it is currently exploring with its tennis channel, would be done in partnership with sportsbook operators, but Sinclair would not want to become a bookie itself. So that'll change things a little bit. This stuff is coming, and it's coming soon. Yeah, I think in addition to all of the like obvious ways in which this is tricky for the sport, I personally, and this is by far the least important part of this whole thing. So I don't mean to minimize the very real impact that this could have both on, you know, people who um, are inclined to gamble and maybe to their own detriment and also to baseball as like an institution. But I just really don't care about sports betting. And now I'm going to have to know so much about it. I'm Mm -hmm. just going to have to learn about this whole thing that I don't care about. (laughs) I don't. I don't care for the people who do care. Good for you. I care about all kinds of stuff that's goofy that no one else cares about. So I I don't necessarily mean it as a knock on those who do care, although I maybe mean it a little bit as a knock on those who do care. But I just am going to have to learn so much about this. And I Mm -hmm. don't want to. (laughs) Gonna have to for work. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's going to be unavoidable. I also read that Fox Sports became the first big media company. I'm reading from a CNBC headline here to put its brand on a sports betting product. Fox Sports is partnering with Canadian betting company The Stars Group to launch FoxBet, an online sports betting product. So yeah, this is going to be everywhere pretty soon. I don't begrudge i mean for people who enjoy it responsibly sure i don't see it's why it's worse than anything else out there except for i guess the the byproduct of the fact that unavoidably there are some people who don't enjoy it responsibly and and are perhaps unable to and so that preys on on their proclivity to that which is bad but on the whole if you want to waste a little money wagering on sports instead of wasting money on some other thing that brings you happiness then that's fine with me. And yeah. I, I don't know why it is that I am completely uninterested in it because like you, I am also. And like in principle, it sounds like the sort of thing I should be into. It's got numbers and yeah. prop bets. I enjoy like fun prop bets for, for no money or anything just to see what happens. We do those on the, the Ringer podcast sometimes. And sure. I don't know. It seems like uh, a lot of other stat heads obviously have been interested in this in the past, but 
I guess partly it's just the fact that I accept that I won't win. And so part of me just isn't interested in actively losing money if the goal is to win money. Like if what brings you pleasure is the possibility of winning money, then that possibility is pretty low in the long run. So that saps all of that potential for enjoyment out of it for me. And then if you enjoy the game more because of your bet, then I guess that could be good. So I I just tend to enjoy the game already, I guess. Right. I don't know. <laughs> so it's just it's extra. It's something that I don't need and don't really want to be added to my screen yeah. with a lot of clutter and stuff while I'm watching baseball, but it's probably going to be. Yeah, I, I think that part of it is like you. I accept that I just probably won't win much. I've never been, I mean, like this is different than poker, right? In terms of its form, but like, I've never been a good poker player. Mm -hmm. I have an expressive face and so I'm bad at poker. (laughs) (laughs) I do not bluff well. (laughs) And so I just have never, like games or chance have never really thrilled me that much. And, uh, and so even when I'm able to like further intellectualize it by bringing in, you know, this thing that I really do like, baseball and all of its um, sundry statistics, it just does not, just doesn't do it for me. And I, I know that this isn't like a perfect, there isn't a perfectly clear path here, but I do get nervous about there being increasingly myriad ways for money to come into the game that don't really have anything to do with winning and fielding Mm -hmm. a competitive baseball team and you know i know that like teams themselves are not direct beneficiaries of this but i just feel like the more money is in the ecosystem that doesn't really have much to do with well it sometimes has everything to do with winning i should i guess i should say that but is not inherently necessarily uh tied to fielding a competitive roster it's just i don't know it just makes me a little makes me a little antsy sitting Mm -hmm. shift in my chair so yeah i don't i don't like that part right i mean it could be a good thing in the sense that it may increase interest in baseball sure obviously gambling sports betting has been big for football and has contributed to that sports popularity and baseball it it seems like is very well suited to the sort of thing to prop bets and to wagering in real time because the odds are always being adjusted and I, i could see that being captivating for people and maybe that brings more people to baseball who will then like the sport and increase interest and increase coverage and all those things could be positives. I I don't know how it will end up affecting like the labor situation if teams are benefiting from this or the league is more than players or if anyone is benefiting from this. I, I don't know how that will happen. And of course, there are always concerns about just making sure that the games are on the level, but it's really hard for me to forecast because I am not at all an expert about gambling, and yet it's going to be part of the thing that we have to know about pretty soon or immediately. Well, and I'm curious, based on nothing but um, our conversation with James the other day in terms of what drove him away from baseball betting as he was looking at different sporting markets and then, of course, applying his talents to Jeopardy, I, I do wonder it'll be curious to see like how how lucrative it actually is i mean i imagine it's going to be really really lucrative but it does seem like the kind of market that would quickly you you would quickly lose in efficiency and just because there's so much information and so many stats and i don't Mm -hmm. know i'll be very curious to see how that evolves or i actually will not be at all curious but i will have to (laughs) obligated to be professionally curious yeah Yeah. i'll have to pay attention to that it's fine. We yeah. pay we pay attention to the Orioles, and they're not especially interesting <laughs> either. Although the home run rate makes them potentially more interesting <laughs> to me than uh, than sports betting. So yeah. 
good job, Orioles. You won something. <laughs> Congratulations. You did it. <laughs> I wonder what the fallout for fantasy sports is. I yeah. Mean, fantasy has is, is kind of been almost like a surrogate for gambling, like a, right. a, a legal alternative. And you have DFS, Daily Fantasy, which has been ruled mostly, I guess, not to be gambling. I mean, I don't. I don't think it's purely a game of chance. Clearly, right. there's some skill involved there, but that has been one way to get that fix. And I don't know whether you just integrate them now so that it's just part of the same platform or whether it will pull people away from fantasy just to skip straight to the, the money making. Obviously, you don't just play fantasy to win your league and hopefully win some percentage of the pot. You you want to actually have some camaraderie and follow baseball and test yourself and trash talk and all that stuff is still important. So I, I don't know what the ramifications would be for fantasy. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I I just don't know. We're going to find out, though. <laughs> yeah. Yep, this will be a fun adventure. All right. So <laughs> we can uh, – maybe we can return to, to the White House thing. I'm, I'm yeah. scared to, but there's probably a way we could discuss it without turning everyone off. But I, I do want to hear about Chris Paddock from you as Ugh. the – the nation's foremost Chris Paddock appreciator. Oh, I don't know if I'm the foremost Chris Paddock appreciator, but I am <laughs> certainly a Chris Paddock appreciator. You know, that start was just so delightful. I think that there is like a, there's a glass of pitcher where, you know, you get excited to watch every start of theirs. And I think that we tend to be a little slow on the uptake about who those guys are can sometimes lag for, you know, sometimes even a season, which is why breakout candidates are never really breakout candidates because they tend to have broken out the season prior. But he he is quickly climbing into that tier of pitcher for me where it's like, I just want to see what this guy has to do. I mm-hmm. want to see what he's going to be doing here. And the the fact that he is willing to be both, you know, pretty expressive uh, as he is on the mound and is, is willing to do like a little bit of trash talking, but the kind of trash talking that you don't feel icky about (laughs) it's just it's just uh it's just fantastic and then the the you get to the actual pitching part and you get to see how that changeup plays with the fastball and you feel feelings makes he makes you feel stuff it's pretty great and part of a very fun although not always as good as they are fun but very fun uh padres team and so I'm in on Chris Paddock, and not just because I picked him to be my NL Rookie of the Year, although that doesn't hurt. Add some additional stakes for me, <laughs> yeah, I suppose. You have some skin in the game now. This is this is your gambling. <laughs> yeah. You've made a prediction. So, <laughs> Which we hate doing so much, what we have to do. It is like our gambling. It's a thing of professional obligation that mm-hmm. none of us enjoy because no one remembers when you get it right. Really, no one really remembers. They only yeah. remember when you get it horribly, horribly wrong, which is why we all pick such safe bets. But <laughs> yeah, well, right. I, you have conflicting philosophies there. I always make the safe, boring bets, and other people will sometimes make the edgy, interesting bets because it's probably smart in the long run. Because if you actually do cash in on one of those long shots, then you get to gloat about it, I guess. So if I win my safe, boring bets, then it's still safe and boring. And I'd probably be reluctant to gloat about it anyway because I don't think I'm actually good at predicting things. So if I actually happen to predict something, it's probably just luck. So Chris Paddock is is really fun. And Jay Jaffe wrote about him this week about his pitching approach. But I do enjoy the kind of like WWE promo type aspect of his personality where he's walking in with a cowboy outfit or... 
or <laughs> picking a fight with Pete Alonso, who I, I guess the origin of this feud is just that Pete Alonso was the NL Rookie of the Month and Chris Paddock was mad about it, which uh, doesn't seem like Pete Alonso's fault. But well, it was mad about it, but like in a in like a in such in a, a tepid way. way, right? I mean, the beginning part of that quote was, "Does he deserve the Rookie of the Month honor?" Absolutely. <laughs> so it's like he's. He's mad because he also had a very good month and uh, arguably could have been uh, deserving as well. But this is the best kind of this is the best kind of trash talking because it emanates from a confidence in oneself rather than a denigration of other people's uh, abilities. And mm-hmm. it is just a, I like I like my stuff better, but that guy's good too. And I'm here for that every day. I I did not enjoy the cowboy thing in the beginning because when I you know I remember watching I guess it was his first start of the year maybe probably and mm-hmm. he came in and the you know in the sheriff thing and i had the reaction that i often have to young men making bold aesthetic choices which is like so you're going to feel embarrassed about this later this is <laughs> going to be a thing you wish you hadn't done but now i think it's great <laughs> <laughs> i've changed my mind chris paddock has won me over wear all the weird cowboy stuff you want sir do it mm-hmm. yeah so. Yeah, it's fun. He has a personality, and he's also a really good pitcher. And I guess the Padres will have decisions to make about how much to let him pitch. Yeah, Maybe that will be contingent on how the Padres are doing. But Paddock is, I believe, represented by Scott Boris, right? He's a Scott Boris client, and... I think that's true. If that's the case, and I'm not making that up entirely, that is always a factor with his pitchers and shutting them down or not. So we'll see how they handle that on that staff. They want him to pitch as much as they possibly can, but they don't want to jeopardize his future. Yeah, I I would expect that they know that they are a little early and that they are perhaps, you know, likely to still struggle to overtake the Dodgers in that division and that they will make good sound choices about his health. Baseball Reference does not list an agent for Chris Paddock yet. So yeah. I don't I Googled. know. It's worse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so perhaps he will not be signing a long-term extension anytime yeah. soon. Gosh, but... that trade looks so bad in hindsight. Mm, Man. I know. <laughs> oh, <Aww>. oh, Yeah. <laughs> The all savvy trade team over there in San Diego. Geez, those are two of the worst ones we've seen in a while. Mm-hmm. It's weird Fernando to know. Rodney, straight up. Yep, straight Paddock. up. Uh, yeah. Is the Tatis trade worse? It's worse. It's worse. Uh, right? Yeah. Which of those is worse? Mm. I probably would still pick Tatis, I think. Right. Eric Johnson and Tatis for James Shields and Cash. That's. Uh, <laughs> and cash yeah <laughs> who knows maybe it was a lot of cash but could have been a lot of cash i guess i would I, no i think that i will firmly say that it's worse even though it's weird to have a you know strong uh, firm opinion about this for either of them considering how young how early in their careers they are but Tatis is only 20 and he's mm-hmm. a position player so you worry a little less about injury even though he is currently injured but yeah whew some bad deals. It's very strange to know what keeps a stranger up at 3 a.m. Like when they wake up at 3 and their minds start spinning on stuff that they've done in their lives that is silly. But I bet we 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 know the GMs on the other ends of those trades. Mm-hmm. Ugh, that's a weird thing to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, all right, let's circle back and, and see what we can say about the, the hot button issue of the moment. So I, I just saw a tweet that was tweeted since we started talking, I think. 
And this was Tom Werner, chairman of the Red Sox, said, we don't see this as a racial divide. He repeated that baseball is apolitical. And uh, (laughs) he's saying this at a moment when his team is visiting the literal president at the White House and is extremely racially divided. So I don't know how he is is pretending that that's the case. But when people say baseball is apolitical or, or like keep politics out of baseball, I sort of get what they mean. Sure. You, sometimes you just want to watch the baseball and not think about the politics, and it's a nice escape from that stuff sometimes. And on this podcast, we don't typically talk about politics. We talk about political things sometimes or things that are considered political because so much is. And sometimes in baseball, there is just a direct overlap between politics or politicians and baseball, and you just can't avoid it. Like when there is a... An agreement to have Cuban players come over and then Donald Trump says no and his administration tosses that out or when Major League Baseball is lobbying Congress to make sure that they don't have to pay minor league players and successfully as it turns out those are intersections between politics and baseball or or local stadium funding or you know national broadcast I mean everything comes down to politics a lot of things do and you can still talk about players like Chris Paddock and Pennant right. Racist and all that stuff is fun and, and doesn't necessarily overlap with politics in, in an explicit way. But the White House visit is uh, probably the most explicit of the explicit yeah. intersections of sports and politics. And in this case, because of this racial divide that is very evident, even if Tom Warner says it's not, it's kind of a, an ugly situation because regardless of what you think of the politics and of this particular politician – it's still not a great thing for a team to be splintered along racial lines for any reason. And this seems to have been the impetus for that. Yeah, I... Uh, how do I want to talk about this? Well, the political theorist in me would say that everything is political. And so mm-hmm. the keep politics out stuff is silly. Although like you, I am you know, I am not unsympathetic to the desire to want to focus on the baseball part. I mean, I always, the the place where I'm often confronted with this is when we can circle back to the Cubs stuff and Addison Russell later if we want to just continue the bummer train. But, you know, when when players will be suspended for domestic violence, I often feel like I should say something about that. Um, And there is invariably someone who chirps about how they just want to focus on the baseball. And my reaction is always like, well, your issue, your gripe isn't with me like go talk to the guy who just abused his wife right that's why we have to talk about this because of his decisions baseball player (laughs) right like go talk to that guy yeah i wonder if teams would be well served just generally to say that the the white house visit is just going to be a tradition that we discontinue yeah i think we're heading that way because you know you're never going to satisfy the totality of your fan base because you're going to have, even in, you know, when there's an administration that is perhaps less controversial than this one, is that a, that's a very uh, cop-out way of talking about it, but like it <laughs> inspires less uh, fervor one way or the other than this one does. Mm-hmm. You're never going to have consensus among your fan base because, you know, there are people and they're going to espouse a variety of political opinions all along the spectrum. So I don't know that 
we, I think that we are rightly recognizing that that institution is never a political and that even the ceremonial aspects of it involve, you know, you taking a happy picture with the occupant of that office mm-hmm. and that that is going to read a particular way. And then when you have an administration whose policies do have often fall along racial lines and inspire sometimes racial animus. You know, I think that they probably would have been better served saying, we're just going to sit this one out. Mm -hmm. Having not done that, you have to, you're picking a path no matter what decision you make. And I think that teams would probably be well served to have internal conversations amongst their employees because that's what baseball players are right they're employees of this organization to say like what what decision can we make that allows us to have constructive conversations as teammates who have to work together about you know why some people are choosing to sit out and why some people aren't i don't imagine that any of the players of color who are deciding not to go to the white house are doing that without a you know a very real and visceral understanding of the impact that the policies of this administration have on the communities they come from and that is a that's a productive conversation to have and probably one that is more productive if it is done within the confines of the Red Sox organization and not as part of, you know, the broader discourse. And so Mm -hmm. I just don't know why they go. I don't know why they decide to go because it isn't a neutral, it isn't a neutral position. Going there is not neutral. And I think that given the specific objections that any number of people in this country have to that administration, particularly people of color who are represented on that team, that, you know, those are those are reasonable and real objections and should probably dictate the course of that decision more than the comfort that white players have being there because the policies that this administration espouses affect them differently. And, mm-hmm. you know, when one this is this is part of representational theory. Like, if I can be annoying and put on my former <laughs> life hat, like w- one thing that people talk about when they talk about representation is when you have two groups of people and one group cares a very great deal and the other group is neutral, or if they're really excited, maybe are excited for uh, not great reasons. Mm-hmm. We don't need to balance those things equally, right? So the group that is adversely affected in a much more real way should probably have more say here. So I wish that they had had that conversation internally and listened to their players because this was an easy, this was an easy one to predict. I mean, the the manager of the team is from Puerto Rico. That's the thing. Yeah. Right. Like, what are we doing here? Right. Cora is sitting this one out as an explicitly political statement. Yeah. He was deciding whether it would be more effective to, to go and, and perhaps say something or to not go. And he decided not to go to bring attention to that cause. And I think it's interesting because a lot of baseball players, I think they want to keep politics out of things too, with some notable exceptions, of course, because sure. they have to live in close proximity to each other all the time for most of the year in a clubhouse with many people who have backgrounds that are completely dissimilar and maybe political beliefs that are completely dissimilar. And when I've asked a couple of players about is politics discussed in clubhouses, I think we may have had, I don't know, either Dan Heron or Brandon McCarthy or both talk about that on, on the show once. And they said, guys don't really talk about it that much because it's just going to lead to fault lines and disagreements. And then you have to 
be in a clubhouse with that guy and stay in the same hotel as that guy and be on the bus and be on the plane with that guy. And you just you don't want to be arguing about politics all the time. So it's it's almost better just not to say anything and to, to pretend and just to coexist within the same small ecosystem. And something like yeah. this makes that kind of impossible to do because it brings it out in the open and you have a lot of players who feel strongly about not going you probably have some players who feel strongly about going and then you have other players who just don't feel strongly either way and i'm sort of surprised that more of those have not decided to stay home just sort of out of solidarity with a lot of their teammates who clearly do feel strongly about this and I wonder whether some teammates who opted not to go feel like this is a betrayal or whether they're just okay with it and they don't want to impose their beliefs on anyone else. I'm sure there's a bit of both, but it is the situation that if you're a baseball team, I mean, I guess there's some value in going to the White House and taking a picture with the president or at least some presidents and getting to celebrate your championship. That could be a nice thing. But in these extremely polarized times, it seems like it's going to lead to a lot more problems than good things. So I, I wonder, just because it's become in every sport and more so in, in other sports, really, but even now baseball, it's just this annually divisive thing that right. becomes a big story and the benefits can't possibly outweigh the costs. So I, I think you're right that this will come to an end sometime soon. Yeah, I just think that when I can't, um, well... That's not true. I can imagine how it feels to interact with people in the world knowing that they care significantly less about things that have a direct impact on your life than you do. But it can't feel good, especially on a team that has, you know, the diversity that the Red Sox do coming from a city with a fraught history of racism Mm -hmm. (laughs) to, you know, to know that the best case scenario, if you're a player who is sitting out and you're doing that in protest of the policies that this administration is espousing that directly impact your community adversely, that the best case scenario for another player on your team who is white is that they are indifferent to those problems, right? That's the best case scenario. Mm -hmm. And the worst case scenario is that they support those policies. And then you have to go to work the next day and like, (laughs) you know, and root for each other and try to coalesce. And that's always the struggle that we have is people who occupy different spaces on the political continuum. But in a sport that is, you know, where the team matters so much, that has to feel horrible. And so I just don't know why the club wouldn't have tried to short circuit that inevitable problem, right? Or the inevitable problem of their manager making a very principled stance about how resources have been allocated to Puerto Rico in the aftermath of the hurricanes. And then to look at, you know, to look at Red Sox Twitter and see a bunch of yahoos telling him to go back to his country, right? Right. Yeah, why put him in that position? Why put him in that position, right? It it almost undermines his authority. Like he's he's a leader of the team. Right. And he's kind of being undercut in a sense. I mean, he doesn't speak for the organization in all things, obviously. But just to very clearly say the organization doesn't care that much about the thing that 
<laughs> the person we've we've chosen to lead our team and has done so very successfully yeah. and we value his service in that sense and then you've got Mookie Betts the MVP of the championship season you have David Price playoff hero neither of them went you have the former face of the Red Sox David Ortiz saying he wouldn't have gone and then you end up with these photos of an overwhelmingly white Red Sox delegation this is the franchise that was the last to integrate which granted was 60 years ago but this isn't the ideal image for any organization to project and this administration is unique i i would say is is an outlier in a lot of respects and so with previous administrations with perhaps future administrations it wouldn't be quite as much of a a flashpoint as it is right now and obviously like there could be something nice and wholesome about this like it reinforces baseball's centrality to the american experience and it shows that this is like a pastime that's valued in this country and obviously there is a lot of respect attached to the office itself if not necessarily to any one of its individual occupants so maybe there will be a world again where these visits could kind of go off routinely and even if you disagree politically with the person who is in the office you don't personally loathe that person so much that that you don't want to be in their presence so i think that is a something of a departure from the past and yeah you know it'd be a shame if this killed a good thing but it's probably just tricky enough of a thing that we should just kind of keep these things separate yeah and people should like learn what country Puerto Rico's part of. <laughs> right. That's a thing that people on Twitter should learn. <laughs> yeah, it's just a bummer. I do. I. It's so strange because what is what is the real value of that photo up? You know, mm-hmm. it just seems like that has such minimal value. Even even with a neutral, if there were such a thing as a neutral White House occupant, right, where it's just about going and, like you said, you know, us honoring the the successes that the team has had mm-hmm. what is the what is yeah. the real upshot no one's like yeah. oh yeah now that they've now that they've gotten a picture with the prez it's real deal that that world <laughs> series trophy really means something now so i'm just yeah. so, i'm surprised I mean, that there hasn't been a decision to be like you know we're just gonna we're just not mm-hmm. i'm sure <laughs> that visit has been meaningful to players in the past like i'm yeah i'm sure, I'm they, sure it's meaningful they to like players. getting a handshake and everything yeah. it's, it's kind of like a perk of winning the world series you yeah. get to go meet the, the leader of the country that's it's a nice reward i guess unless that leader is, is very distasteful to you so <laughs> i don't know yeah. it's uh it's a tradition that I, I remember reading something about it and i don't think it goes back as far as i thought it went back it's yeah. not like it's not like a president throwing out the first pitch on opening day or something which goes back quite a long time i, I believe the white house visit is a more recent innovation and so perhaps we can dispense with it without uh offending tradition too much yeah yeah. Hmm. I don't know. I think it is useful for us as uh, as human beings in the world to continue to evaluate our understanding of uh, the neutrality of acts like this, because that's a useful thing to ruminate on as like citizens. So mm-hmm. in that sense, it is productive. But I imagine that the clubhouse was pretty weird the day after that, uh, especially when the yeah. the lines were as starkly drawn as they were. And I would I do wish that these teams and the league would stop talking about their the, the supposed apolitical position that they occupy. I mean, MLB mm-hmm. literally has a lobbying group right. and a political <laughs> action committee. So I think that's a little we can let we can dispense with that 
a mm-hmm. bit of silliness. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the team that has banned Fortnite because of concerns that it, it might be a distraction. And this is the team of chicken and beer in the clubhouse and <laughs> overblown concerns about that kind of thing. This seems like it could actually be sort of serious. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Maybe this will all blow over and they'll just go back to playing baseball and, and get on with their lives. And they have their eyes on the prize. And the Red Sox as a team have recovered somewhat from their terrible start and they're back to 500. And maybe they'll just keep rolling along and it'll be fine. I don't know. But you wonder whether there will be any lingering bitterness about this. Yeah. It's the sort of thing where I think that we tend to hear about those concerns when underperformance or poor performance lingers. And so, you know, getting getting back on track as a team will probably heal a lot of this stuff. But, you know, these are I think it's it's good to have the conversation, even if the the impetus for it is not especially great. But, you know, it can't it can't be an easy thing to realize that several of your most important clubhouse leaders are on one side of this divide and they are feeling likely pretty unsupported by the the rest of their team. So that can't be Mm -hmm. good. Looking at a WAPO article about the history of championship sports teams visits. So 1963 Celtics were the first NBA team to visit the 1980 Pittsburgh Steelers first NFL team, the 1991, I think Pittsburgh Penguins were the first NHL team. The baseball history does go back further. So there were some like amateur teams that showed up right after the civil war. There were the Cincinnati Red Stockings whose 150th anniversary is being celebrated now. They paid a visit and the 1924 senators who were in the neighborhood already They are, it seems, the first title-winning professional team to visit the White House in baseball, but it sounds like celebratory visits have only become common in the the past 30 years or so. So there have been some isolated instances, but this is not a, a tradition that goes way, way back. Maybe we should change it and everyone who wins a World Series gets to uh, meet Beyonce. Everyone loves Beyonce. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty uncontroversial. Yeah, I we should just so. do that. Uh-huh. And then uh, and then it really will be a celebration. Uh, maybe we could ask her to sing a song and uh, we can sidestep this. I don't want, you know, sidestepping it is, I suppose, a little bit cowardly because people have to pick where they're going to make their stands. And sometimes we're not able to pick when those moments are going to come. So I don't know. But I think that uh, we should we should start a new tradition. It doesn't have to be Beyonce. It's just that everyone loves Beyonce. (laughs) Right. So one thing that I want to talk about is Vlad Guerrero. Yeah. (laughs) There have suddenly been a a lot of articles about (laughs) Vlad Guerrero for different reasons, namely that he hasn't hit yet. So Fangrass published one of these fine pieces. We did. Also by Craig Edwards. And uh, Vlad has not hit and no one is at all worried about it. But it's sort of striking and disappointing because of course we were all extremely excited for him to arrive and we were waiting forever and we sort of hoped that he would hit the ground running and be one of the best players in baseball from day one or best hitters at least and he has not been thus far. Fangraphs uh, still takes me first to senior Vlad so I have to scroll down to junior Vlad. Yeah. (laughs) So Younger Vlad has a 23 WRC plus as you speak through his first 10 games and 41 fight appearances. He has hit lots and lots of grounders. He's not elevating. He is also walking a, a fair amount. But I think 
What is interesting about this to me, obviously this is meaningless. No one is worried about Vlad. This is a a tiny sample and he will be fine. Probably this season he will be fine. But what's interesting to me is that no one is throwing him strikes, which is probably part of why he is struggling so far. So, So over the past two weeks, I'm looking at the split for qualified hitters. Vlad has the fifth lowest zone rate in baseball. 38.4% of the pitches he's seen have been in the strike zone. And that can be kind of a confusing leaderboard because you have guys who will swing at anything near the bottom there. And and so teams will just throw them lots of balls, just hoping that they will chase them. So you have like Jorge Alfaro at the top of that leaderboard or, or bottom, depending on how you sort. And you have Javi Baez there and, you know, free swingers. But then you also have like Chris Bryant and Alex Bregman and guys who don't really chase. So there are a couple of reasons why a hitter may not be thrown strikes. It could be that he will chase anything and so you don't have to throw him strikes, but it could also be because pitchers are afraid to throw him strikes. And I wonder which it is in Vlad's case because you could make a case for either. And for people who are wondering, I was curious to see whether rookies on the whole have a, a much lower or higher zone rate than non-rookies. And it's pretty similar. Last year, their zone rate, I think, was uh, slightly higher, like a half a percentage point higher, which is what I would have expected. Because I think on the whole, you tend to just kind of fire strikes in there until someone proves that they can hit them. So Vlad, it could be that everyone is scared of him and genuinely respects him and and wants to stay away from the big bat. It could be that they're thinking of him as as his father and they (laughs) think he will chase everything, which would be a bad scouting report, I think, because he is not that type of hitter and he doesn't really chase a whole lot. So I'm, I'm wondering which it is because obviously he came in with quite a reputation despite the fact that the Blue Jays were pretending he wasn't a big leaguer. It would be interesting if when he appeared on day one, pitchers were treating him as if he was already one of the best hitters in baseball, which is what the projections said. Yeah, Craig noted after after we published this piece that this is he has the same WRC plus or about the same WRC plus as his father did in the same number of plate appearances right after he debuted. Yeah. Uh, so there's some nice symmetry there. But yeah, I, I think that clearly his reputation sort of precedes him. I would expect that whatever hand waving the the Blue Jays did, as you noted, that you know, that he is supposedly not a big leaguer. I think that when it comes down to it, people probably were given an, you know, pitchers were given an accurate scouting report and were told to be afraid of that bat. Yeah. Uh, it'll be, f- it's going to be fine. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's going to be fine. I did get a question in my chat about this though. Or like, have, have, have scouts changed their mind? I was like, no. Yeah, they, no. they haven't. <laughs> Thing is, no, they have not. That would be very rash. Yeah, because yeah. you have teams like at this point. I don't think I would be surprised if there's any big difference between like how a, a hitter is getting pitched in AAA and then how he's pitched when he first comes up to the big leagues. In the past, I think there would have been right because maybe AAA pitchers know the guy and know what his weaknesses are. Whereas you get to the big leagues and you're just a generic rookie, except for a few exceptions. Now I think you have video, you have stats and locations, and almost all the stats you have for the majors, at least on the offensive side, you have for the high minors. And so I doubt there's any difference in the scouting report. You maybe have certain pitchers who are sort of stubborn and think 
I'm not going to follow the scouting report until I see this guy myself and see if he can actually catch up to me. This rookie, like, welcome to the league. I'm going to blow this by you. And then when you get burned, you adjust. So there's probably some of that macho stuff still going on, but yeah. I'd imagine for the most part, like no one's coming up and and I wonder if that's changed things because there's a perception that like if you're on your first trip around the league, you can like feast on opposing teams and then the league catches up to you. And I wonder whether that effect is as pronounced now where you have all this information on guys on day one and Flat is obviously like in the spotlight for a while now, and he's not your typical minor leaguer. But I think right. for most minor leaguers, even when they get to the big leagues, the teams have the book on them already. Yeah, I think that that's right. And so, you know, it'll just be it'll be interesting to see. He is, as you noted, he is walking a fair amount. It'll be interesting to see how that number sort of shifts over time. I imagine yeah. there will come a point where they start actually throwing him strikes. Yeah. But I think that the most useful. The most useful one to remember out of all of this is Mike Trout because we can't make anything about anyone other than Mike Trout even when we're talking about Vlad and his his WRC plus was marginally better through his first like 40 or so plate appearances but only marginally mm-hmm. um you know I think that what Craig had it at it was like 52 something like that yeah and I think he's done fine <laughs> He's done all right. Yeah. He's done okay. He's, he's made good. Yeah. I, I wrote about uh, Trout's rookie season, his 2011 rookie season a year or two ago, because I was sort of fascinated by like, how did Trout go from not actually being that good yeah. to then being the best player in baseball very shortly thereafter. Yeah. And looking back on it, like, I think he was pretty good at the time. He, he was sort of, uh, he had a low BABIP. I believe he was hitting in hard luck. I, I think I actually contacted a team and got some like hit FX data, or at least they looked at his hit FX data for that year, which is not publicly available. And they said he was hitting the ball hard. So that's a little different in that Vlad just hasn't really been hitting the ball all that well, I, I don't think, for the most part, but he's not seeing any strikes. Uh, anyway, I, I think Trout was good from the get-go, but yeah. not otherworldly. And it's almost <laughs> refreshing in a sense that like Vlad and Aloy Jimenez mm-hmm. have not been spectacular immediately. Not that I am rooting against them. I want them to be great. But those were two guys who... When I was doing my top 10 positional rankings for MLB Network this year, I think both I and Mike Petriello at least had those guys on our top 10s at at one position or another, just as a reflection of how confident we were in them and in their minor league performance and in the projections of them. And they've not been great, just, you know, 21 games for Jimenez, and then he got hurt. Vlad is 10 games, so it's it's nothing. But it almost feels like every hitter who comes up these days is just great right away, or at least that there's no aging curve. There's been some research that's shown that these days players just kind of come into the league and they're good right away, and then eventually they decline, but it's it's not really the standard kind of like get better for a while and then get worse. And that's probably because teams are better at knowing when to promote players. They're better at developing players. All these players are really polished, but you can still struggle at times because mm-hmm. the major leagues are still really hard. It's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> There's still a, a big gap between AAA and the majors, and that can be hard for even elite prospects to handle. Well, and I think that it's revealing of sort of how um, biased we tend to be in our own brains to the sequencing of those slumps. I mean, Craig made this point in his piece just about some established hitters and the, the sort of swoons that they've had over the last 14 days. But, you know, if if Ladd had come up 
and he had lit the world on fire. And then he had a random 10 games in July where he was just kind of not, you know, he was just kind of off and things weren't working the way that he wanted to, or he was having bad BABIP look, or he's not getting thrown strikes. We wouldn't notice that. We just wouldn't notice, or we we might, but we wouldn't be. It wouldn't raise any concern because I think we understand that while there are you know hitters, some hitters are more consistent in their production than others. There is a fair amount of back and forth in terms of the quality of um, a hitter's performance over the course of a season. You know, they mm-hmm. can be pretty streaky and probably more streaky than we t- tend to uh, realize or remember. So it is sort of an interesting comment on how we how we end up thinking about this stuff. It's like when, you know, when we were talking with Sam, that that thing that can happen where you see a guy for the first couple of weeks of a season and then stop paying attention to him. And that just remains your impression of him for the duration, even if, you know, yeah. he goes on to be wildly good or wildly bad afterward, you know. So Sam is going to think that Tim Beckham is amazing for the whole season. <laughs> and maybe he'll think that Vlad is terrible, but I think he will have more cause to check in on him than probably Tim Beckham. So that might swing it. But we should just remember these things these things ebb and flow. He'll be yeah. fine. Yeah. And speaking of players who are not seeing strikes and are not swinging at non-strikes, Joey Gallo is one of the <laughs> few hitters yes. who is seeing fewer pitches in the strike zone than Vlad lately. Yeah. And Joey Gallo has figured out not to swing yeah. at those pitches. And that is a wonderful development yes. because now he is really good. Oh, and, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> he has uh, lowered his chase rate very significantly. It was usually in the like 31, 32% range in previous seasons. Now it's down to 24%. And he is really, really good. And that seems to have made all the difference. I mean, yeah. he's still striking out a lot. He's Joey Gallo. But he's down to 33% instead of 36, 37%. And he's walking a ton. So he's walked 21% of the time so far. If Joey Gallo can lay off those pitches, which seems to be a conscious choice that he's made this year, he has this unbelievable power. And if he can pair that with walks, then it's okay if he also strikes out sometimes. And and if he doesn't hit for that high an average, I mean, he's hitting 274 right now, which would be extremely high for him, but he doesn't even have to do that. He can hit 240 or something and 230 even if he's drawing walks and, and hitting for power. So this is exciting because he's one of the most fun hitters to watch and one of the hitters that I've been rooting for for years now. Well, and I'm so I'm so excited at this development because Gallo has been Gallo's one of those guys where like this profile of player doesn't exist in the majors prior to the modern moment, right? Like Joey right. Gallo can't find a job probably <laughs> at least on a consistent basis, you know, 30 years ago, right? Baseball has just changed in terms of the the K percentage we're comfortable with and that teams are comfortable with and the trade-off they understand between that and power and what they're willing to field. And so he has always been really interesting for us, I think, as a as a barometer of the direction that the game is going. And now he's evolving that profile some. And so I'm just like so fascinated to see how long like the walk rate stays high and does he sustain average throughout the whole year? Is this like a you know, I got asked about him in my chat too. And I expect that that that'll, you know, it'll waver some because at some point people will adjust, but my goodness, it's so exciting to see that profile shift is like, you know, we're seeing the next phase of baseball evolution again in Joey Gallo. (laughs) Yes. 
I, I wrote about him for Grantland like five years ago now, and, and he was in the minors at the time, and the headline was the most interesting man in the minors yeah. because he really was. like He didn't have any comps exactly at that point because he was striking out and also hitting for more power than just about any prospect had, or at least the combination of those two things. And so the question was, which of these will win out? Will he right. be able to hit for enough power to overcome the strikeouts, or will the strikeouts overcome the power? And will he be more Adam Dunn, or will he be more Dave Kingman? Like, can he be even better than that? And of course, he has more defensive value than those guys did. He's a, a competent center fielder, which yeah. is surprising. and Not something you think when you think Joey Gallo, but this refinement in his plate discipline could kind of answer that question. And he's still only 25 years old, and he's already hit 100 homers in his career. And as many people pointed out, I think he was, what, the first person to get to 100 homers before he got to 100 singles, yeah. I think. He's got 93 singles and 100 <laughs> homers, so... That's weird, but he's and, making it work. And still just the one sacrifice fly. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Remains yeah. the best. Yeah, I mean, like, and he, he's he's slugging 679. <laughs> and I, I, the other thing I love about Gallo is that, like, he's also a surprisingly competent base runner for a, a man his size. Like, he's big. Yeah. He's he is yeah. he is one of those baseball players where when you see them in person on flat ground you are taken aback by how big they are like he is in that mm -hmm. Aaron Judge Giancarlo Stanton range if not quite as physically intimidating as those guys like he is in that ballpark where you're like wow that's a big human and yeah. he's a you know pretty good base runner so it's just a it's just a really weird cool fun thing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. One of the most it. fun, exciting seasons so far and, and seems like sustainable. Like, I don't know, it's hard to assess sustainability because it's like if he keeps doing what he's doing, then yeah, he should be really good. Yeah. But can he keep not swinging at, at bad pitches? I don't know, but he has decided to and he is making that work. And so now pitchers are not throwing him strikes and he's not swinging at them. Right. And so he's walking a whole lot which is good. And so maybe pitchers will adjust back and see, okay, he's not going to chase. I will throw him balls in the strike zone, but then he will hit them 450 feet because he's Joey Gallo. Very, so, very far. Yeah. So I don't know if there's a, a counter move that pitchers can make there. He's taken away the big weapon that they had, and now he has this extraordinary power. I mean, he could be a, a 50 dinger guy yeah. who walks a lot. That's a pretty valuable <laughs> player, especially because he does have defensive value and base running value. So there aren't that many reasons to tune into the Rangers right now, no. but he is one of them. He's definitely one of them. He might be the only one. And I suppose the underperformance of, well, see, this is the thing. It's only been a month. And so I have to check in and make sure that my understanding is actually accurate and that it's not just the first two weeks of, well, I'd say the first two weeks of Rangers baseball that I watched, but that's uh, not as much Rangers baseball as I watched. That would be a lie. It would not be that much. I'm damping so that I can run this leaderboard. So their, oh, their offense is, as a team is better than I thought it was. It's still not amusing, but it's it's better than average, so never mind. I was going to mm -hmm. say, the rest of his lineup being bad might be their pitcher's best defense, because you don't necessarily care if he walks, but I guess they're hitting a little bit better than I thought they were. Maybe. Yeah. 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 It's still not great. <laughs> I don't know. Go ahead a million dingers, Joey. 
Yeah, please do. It's nice when in this home run environment, it is very reassuring. Guys like Joey Gallo help to stabilize sort of the rationality of the game for me because it makes sense that Joey Gallo already has 12 home runs, right? Mm -hmm. Joey Gallo doesn't need a juiced ball. He is not one of these guys that really you don't see an uptick in dingers with that profile because they're already sending it over the fence. So it right. is it is a nice thing. Joey is, mm -hmm. is restoring my faith in baseball as a relatively rational enterprise. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah, like the other day when I watched the highlight of Josh Bell hitting a 472-foot <laughs> home run into the river out of PNC Park, and yeah. I think he was the fourth player to hit one into the river on the fly. And when I watched that in the moment, I just my jaw dropped, and it yeah. was like, okay, that's a, an inspiring home run. And then after it splashed down, I thought – well, yeah, but the ball, <laughs> and that probably went farther than it would have because yeah. the ball is carrying. But it didn't, in the moment, ruin my enjoyment right. of just like the, wow, that's a that's a dinger right there. So I don't know whether there comes a point where that kind of thing becomes so commonplace that it's no longer as earth-shaking when you first see it and you kind of internalize, okay, this is how far baseballs go now. Right. And so it's not as impressive that this went that far. But for me, it's still like a very visceral reaction, like, wow, that was that was a bomb. And then after the fact, I think, eh, wasn't quite as impressive as it seemed, but it was still really pretty. Yeah, I, I'm encouraged by, I'm just looking at the, the home run leaderboard. And it is encouraging how far down this list you have to go before you're like really taken aback by someone's presence there. I guess mm -hmm. I don't really think of Eddie Rosario as a home run hitter, but that's maybe because I just don't think about Eddie Rosario that often. I guess he hit 27 home runs in 2017 and 24 yeah. last year. So shame on me. Bad job, mm -hmm. Meg. Um, but, you know, you have to go a little ways down here before you're really shocked by someone's presence, which I think is a good thing because it, you know, it doesn't make you worry that the the game is broken. Although Cattell Marte has nine home runs. That seems strange to me. I watched Cattell yeah. Marte. Uh, Jeff Sullivan favorite. I know. Cattell Marte. I yeah. like Josh Bell has nine home runs. Yeah. Well, won't you look at that? Jo mm -hmm. Josh Bell has the same number of home runs as Paul Goldschmidt. That seems wrong. Yeah. And more than Trevor Story. More than Manny Machado. Do you like how <laughs> me examining the leaderboards has become <laughs> such a persistent theme of Regular our podcast? Segment. <laughs> yeah. And let me tell you about this thing I discovered the other day. People who watch these teams every day are like, don't you run fan graphs? This is disconcerting. There's a lot mm -hmm. going on, you guys. I can't keep up with every single guy. Sometimes yeah. I have to discover things on the fly. Yeah. By the way, you mentioned our pal James Holtzauer earlier, and uh, Dave Scheinan has an article in the Washington Post about whether MLP teams would actually hire him. <laughs> and boy, they sound thirsty. They want some, <laughs> some James Holtzauer in their lives. There's quotes here from multiple executives, from Billy Bean, from a Red Sox executive, oh, from gosh. an Orioles executive. They all want a piece of James Holtzauer. I can't pretend it's because he came on effectively wild, but it probably didn't hurt. No. But yeah, they they want him. I think he's going to have his his pick of front office if he if he wants to go that way. He did sound very content just being a professional sports better, mm -hmm. which, you know, again, James, I'm so sorry that I care so little <laughs> about the thing that sustains you and your family, but I super don't care, but would think that working i don't know do you think it's more stressful to be a professional sports gambler or work in a major league front office <laughs> they both seem like they would have their moments of anxiety 
Yeah, probably. I'd like the lifestyle more of professional sports gambler, I think. Much more flexible. Yeah, that's that's, true. That's right. I mean, you have to be used to wagering and losing large amounts of money, and you have to be confident that in the long run, it will come out ahead. So that probably is a a significant source of stress, unless you're so good at it, and you've been doing it for a while, and you know that it will play out in your favor. But yeah, yeah, I wouldn't love that. Mm -mm. All right. So uh, Albert Pujols, just uh, he hit a home run, his 639th, and he got his 2000th career RBI. Congratulations to Albert Pujols. Good job, I was telling Sam on the previous episode that I watched all of the Angels game when Shohei Otani returned Mm -hmm. and how much fun I was having Mm. watching Otani and Simmons and Trout. I was not having as much fun watching Pujols versus Cabrera in that game because it was an Angels-Tigers game. And like as much as I was enjoying Trout and Otani, like Pujols and Cabrera were like the reminder of one day what what everyone will be just because those guys were incredibly fun to watch and exciting. And now they're sort of the opposite of yeah. that. So that was sort of a, a sad, <sighs> like, memento mori kind of just reminder of, uh, yeah. of age and mortality. So I, I didn't enjoy that being in the same game. I guess it was a good dose of perspective. But yeah, Pujols is, uh, obviously has been a shadow of his former self for, for some time now. Cabrera, I thought one of the most enlightening things in our team preview podcast series this year was when we did the Tigers interview with Anthony Fennick, and he was talking about how Miguel Cabrera just really, really wants to hit for a high average. Like, he takes a lot of pride in hitting 300, being a high average hitter. And Anthony was saying that he thinks Cabrera kind of prioritizes that over power, that he's opting for more of a, a contact approach. And that was interesting because... Cabrera has recently blamed his teammates, essentially, for his lack of of power. He blamed a lack of lineup protection, and he said, you know, it's not Victor Martinez back there anymore. It's not good hitters. It's like Nico Goodrum. I don't think he specifically said Nico Goodrum, but but that was the implication because Nico Goodrum's behind him a lot this year, and that kind of felt that great if you're Nico Goodrum. But, you know, right now Cabrera is hitting 303. But he is slugging 371 with uh, obviously very little extra base power here. And that translates to a 104 WRC plus, which is, you know, league average, which is not great if you're Miguel Cabrera and you're not giving your team any value in other ways. But that is kind of an interesting alternative explanation for his kind of throwing his teammates under the bus and, and saying, I'm not getting good pitches to hit could actually be that he's just prioritizing contact because he cares about hitting for high averages. And so I wonder if he were to adopt a more power-centric approach and just say, I'm okay with hitting 260 or something, whether he would then get more power and whether that would work out for him and the Tigers overall. But yeah, he's obviously not the same guy. No, he is not the same guy. He is, well, he has the lowest slugging he's had of his whole career right now just the least amount of daylight between any of those slash stats that's not great he also has the highest BABIP of his career that's fantastic (laughs) yeah I don't know I'm trying to adopt a perspective on guys who are sort of in that stage of their careers where I'm I'm being more forgiving of those kind of grumpy quotes because as grumpy as they make me, he has to feel worse every day when he goes to work. Yeah. But 
that isn't a great explanation of why he's hitting the way that he is. <laughs> no. So I think that you might be right that the prioritization of contact is probably the over the overarching theme there. Yeah. Uh, he's actually not seeing fewer pitches in the strike zone yeah. than he has historically. His Same. zone rate this year is like almost identical to his career zone rate. So that doesn't really support that. I mean, the whole topic of lineup protection is a, a fraught one in yeah. sabermetric circles because I think what most of the studies have shown is that lineup protection is real in the sense that it can affect how you're pitched and it can affect the shape of your stats, but it doesn't tend to affect your overall production. So someone who doesn't have lineup protection may actually see fewer pitches to hit and, and may walk more as a result. But if you walk more and you hit a few fewer balls, then you work out to be just as productive as you would have been anyway. Right. So it's not implausible that he could be seeing fewer pitches to hit because of this lineup, and therefore that could be costing him power. But it doesn't really seem like he's seeing many fewer pitches to hit. And if he does have a preference for hitting for high averages, then maybe that has more to do with it. But yeah, that's that's kind of a grumpy quote to to say because you're you're, you're criticizing your, your teammates who are... Mostly young and no, they're not Miguel Cabrera, but then neither is Miguel yeah. Cabrera anymore. <laughs> Miggy hasn't been Miggy in a minute. Yeah, yeah, I imagine it's you start to shift to think about your legacy. And, you know, he probably, I, I guess the most disconcerting thing for Miguel Cabrera to contemplate is that probably no one's going to remember this Tiger season really at all. And if they do... Wow, that's a rough thing to say about a bunch of humans who are trying their best. But, um, you know, if they do, they're probably going to think about it in terms of like the revelation that Matt Boyd has been so far. And he would have to be quite resurgent, I think, to factor heavily into the national sort of discourse around baseball. Although if he were suddenly hitting like his old self, you know, we would definitely talk about that because he I think that Miggy is probably one of has been one of my favorite uh, when he was you know, himself, his old self was one of my favorite, like, pure hitters to watch. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's like, Miggy, you should be less grumpy or you should be a lot more grumpy yeah. than you are. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Don't occupy yeah. the middle grump space uh, that you're <laughs> occupying either. Decide to rally the the young the young ones. Because Goodrum at least had a good start to the season. It seems like he's tapered off a little bit. I would bore people with my exploration of his game log, but I'll save that for another time. But, yeah. you know, like you should either buck up the young guys or or just go like real, real full grump. Go full grump. Don't don't <laughs> be in the middle, especially yeah. with an explanation that doesn't hold water like this because mm-hmm. it doesn't really. Right. And he's not the most likable player no. that there is just given some of his off the field history. Yeah. but. He was yeah. one of the fun and satisfying hitters to yeah. watch of my lifetime and fandom. So yeah. it is uh, sort of a shame that we don't have that pleasure to the Aww. same extent anymore. And yeah, I mean, the Pujols Cabrera parallels in terms of contract and career trajectory are very clear. So I don't like, I, I feel sad for you that you had to think those thoughts while Otani and Trout were on the field at the same time because <laughs> I, I want them to be good forever. Now yes. I'm thinking about my niece who will probably grow up and like you know Mike Trout who knows she's three mm-hmm. by the time she's like really aware of baseball yeah. who knows what Mike Trout will be this is terrible why did we do this <laughs> <laughs> oh no normally I'm the one with really sad thoughts about baseball I guess it was your turn <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
Do we have any happier thoughts to end on? That's, that's well, Chris. Chris Paddock remains uh, very good and fun, so we should be excited about that. The Rockies played through a snowstorm, which oh, allowed yeah. for some really stunning visuals. And uh, I finally saw Endgame. Do we mm. want to answer that listener email as our last thing? Was the question about uh, what would happen? What if, would happen? If everyone came back. Yeah. So I I finally saw Endgame, and my quick review is that I liked it a lot, but it was very long. But other than that, <laughs> yes. it was delightful, and I enjoyed it. But we got. I'm going to find this email, which I starred Thanos and the Mets from Drew, who asked about the post-Endgame MLB impact and uh, wondered, and so if you have not, if you're one of four people on the planet who has not yet seen this movie, you should just skip this part, but after all players suddenly return after five years, are they still under contract? That I don't know. Will there be a special draft for all the returned players? I guess my question is, I don't know that, that baseball, I don't know that there could be baseball. I think that the infrastructure and sort of the the interest and the you know new influx of players that you would need i think that maybe they're if you take a five-year layoff i think that maybe baseball does not recover at all well i think that could be true i think on the ringer mlb show bauman and i talked about whether baseball actually would stop in the event of the snap and of 50 percent of people disappearing or whether people would want to play on just to have a distraction from that tragedy and whether baseball could sustain itself and we tended to think that some form of of professional baseball would survive so i dispute the premise that the movie presents which is that baseball disappears along with half of the life in the universe but (laughs) if we assume that it does then after that five-year layoff It'd be tough to bring it back, but I don't know. Wouldn't you want to just for nostalgia's sake and to show that the world has returned to normality? Well, plus, I guess the real question is, and I guess we have the answer to this. It's not just that Paul Rudd never ages. You know, they're all the same. They're the same age they were when the snap happened. So you mm-hmm. would get this like healthy influx, depending, I guess, on who was affected by the snap. But like you might just get prime Mike Trout back. And you'd be like, hey, guys, and he's going to play baseball no matter what, because what else is Mike Trout going to do except be excited about the weather? So I guess you could, but I would imagine you had probably contraction of the league in the snap years. And then you would. So in that case, you probably would need to have a draft because some players would have aged and five years is enough for some guys to just be done. And other mm-hmm. guys maybe aren't uh, staying in as good a baseball shape or they're playing in a contracted league, so the quality of play isn't as good. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think front offices would – there would stop being, I would imagine, a ton of development of, of new ideas or maybe they wouldn't be as good because you have fewer people. Who yeah. knows? Yeah, there'd definitely be some players like Thor who were no longer in the best shape of their lives. Yeah. So you'd have to come <laughs> back from that. I loved yeah. Fat Thor. Fat Thor was the best <laughs> part too. of Endgame. And I love yeah. that he stayed fat. <laughs> I love that they have changed that character to embrace Chris Hemsworth's being, lovability. Yeah, and being funny because he's yeah. funny. Yeah, made it yeah. a lot better. Yeah. But yeah, I think that uh, it would be very interesting to see. I wonder who the snap would take from fan graphs. Oh, no. Okay, now I don't want to think about it anymore because that would bum me out. But I think that there would still be, I guess I've been persuaded that there would still be baseball. I think that we would have a couple of really weird seasons as we Mm -hmm. got back to some kind of normal uh, equilibrium of baseball and player development. And who knows if, you know, 
young people would want to keep playing baseball in those five years. So as you said, maybe you do it to maintain a sense of normality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Life did continue, although everyone seemed very sad. Yeah. Well, there'd probably be no White House visits at least. So that'd be the one positive. Oh, <laughs> uh, I have a very snarky comment that I will keep to myself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I guess we can call it there. I was going to bring up the Nationals and their struggles, but we wanted to end on a happy note, so that would be the opposite of that. But I encourage you all to go read Jay Jaffe's piece about how the Nationals are very bad at defense and how that is costing them in a very competitive race. Yeah, it is a good piece. It is on Fangraphs.com. You should read mm-hmm. about that and also how Cleveland is now an underdog in their division, according to Dan, yes. who did some uh, Zips modeling. So that seems like a well, that seems like, you know, people facing consequences, but is a bummer for the people who play for that team, work in that front mm-hmm. office, and who like uh, who like that Cleveland team. So sorry, guys, yep. but Dan is not super optimistic for you. Yeah. All right. So I will talk to you next week. Sounds good. One quick update on our previous episode. Sam and I were talking about whether an inside-the-park home run would count toward a true win, and we both agreed that it should, but also that that would be extremely unlikely. I wondered aloud when the last time a pitcher had hit an inside-the-park home run was. Well, thanks to my ringer colleague and former Effectively Wild guest and co-host Zach Cram for doing some adept play indexing and deriving an answer. As it turns out, there have been only two inside-the-park home runs by pitchers in the DH era, 1979 Joaquin Andhar off Bill Lee and 1992 May 8th Butch Henry hit an inside the park home run off of Doug Drabeck and this was actually a Barry Bonds misplay. Bonds dove and misjudged a ball and Henry motored all the way around the bases to score. Zach also found a video of this on YouTube which I will link to for your enjoyment so thank you for answering that question Zach. Oh and by the way Joey Gallo because he is walking a ton now in addition to striking out and hitting lots of homers his three true outcomes percentage so the percentage of his plate appearances that end with a walk strikeout or homer 63.2% For reference, the Major League average this year, which of course is a record high, is 35.6%. So he's beaten that by almost 30 percentage points. Next closest qualified hitter is Bryce Harper at 50.9%. So of the 178 hitters who've qualified for the batting title thus far, Harper and Gallo are the only two with TTO rates over 50%. And Gallo is so far above Harper that he's hardly the same species. If you're curious, the highest ever full season TTO rate for a hitter who qualified for the batting title is... Joey Gallo in 2017 at 58.7%, which narrowly edged out 2007 Jack Cust and 2017 Aaron Judge. So Gallo already holds this record, but he is extending it by a considerable margin right now. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Following five listeners have already signed up to pledge some small monthly amount and keep the podcast going. Andy Kleinberg, Rick Gold, Jay Augsberger, Brian Langford, and Ed Piniazic. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. The reviews and ratings do help us and are appreciated. You can email us. Send us your questions or comments at podcast at fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. You can pre-order my book, The MVP Machine, which is the story of the recent revolution in player development in baseball. It comes out on June 4th, which is very soon. If you pre-order it, you can qualify for pre-order goodies 
bonus chapter, a conversation about the book between me and Travis Sochik, my co-author, and some additional documents that you won't want to miss. So please just send a photo or a screenshot of your receipt or forward your pre-order confirmation to themvpmachine at gmail.com and you will get those goodies on June 4th. We hope you have a wonderful weekend and we will talk to you next week. The same reason you can't stand that virtue words, the same reason you know it word for word, dog is politics. politics. Uh-huh.